Hello and welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host this week, John, and I am joined by Bob Whitaker. Bob, how are you doing? I'm doing well, John. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Is this my second time in a row being host? It is. Yeah, you are on a roll right I'm, now. I'm you on just a keep roll. doing it. We once had yep, to take going. me off hosting duties. I turned in my hosting badge and gun. Uh, that's not actually true, but uh, there, there were very, there were very, um, what's the word? What's the opposite of groundless? Legitimate? There were very legitimate worries that I'd be a terrible host because I'd never shut up. Um, shared <laughs> well, by both now, of us. Now, now I've got too much on my plate, so I'm very happy to have you uh, take over <laughs> podcasting, especially since I'm going to produce both of the video episodes we've got this month. So I yeah. think I, you're doing great. Yeah, you're so doing fantastic. My attempt to garner sympathy has backfired enormously. So... <laughs> <laughs> I was also, we kind of decided I was a natural fit this week because I am incredibly excited about the main topic for this week's podcast, which is the fact that we are getting, Paradox is giving to us, gifting to us, Crusader Kings 3. Sometime in the year of our Lord, I'm speaking in theme now, 2020. (laughs) I'm really excited about this. I'm really, really excited about this. So rather than just me talk randomly for half an hour about how much I love Crusader Kings. Maybe, Bob, what's your reaction to Crusader Kings 3 coming out? Because I don't think you like Crusader Kings 2 quite as much as me, but even just as historians who like games, this is a really interesting series. It is a very interesting series, and I think, you know, from anybody who's been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that uh, we've covered quite a few Paradox games, and what they do so well is that they don't really... Uh, put up guardrails for the player. You know, the their historical simulations are very well researched, but they're also not as um, kind of uh, railroading the player as much as, say, a uh, Sid Meier's Civilization game. So there's a lot more freedom uh, for the uh, Paradox player to, you know, determine their own victory uh, goals, uh, their own objectives while playing the game. Uh, there's a little bit more freedom uh, within the game for how they're going to approach different situations. And I think that uh, I am pretty excited about this. I definitely did not play Crusader Kings as much as you did, John. Uh, and I should mention that uh, John mentioned uh, that they were uh, gifting Crusader Kings 3. They they are actually, uh, they've just made Crusader Kings 2 uh, a free-to-play game. Uh, so if you are curious about uh, Paradox games in general, uh, go and check out Crusader Kings 2 because it's now available for free. And I think it does include one DLC. Um, can't remember the title of that one. But um, it's a title that I dabbled in. I think I played about three hours of. And I was uh, I felt it was a little bit difficult uh, to get into, but I've read so far – uh, for Crusader Kings 3, that they've really spent a lot of time with um, training videos, with uh, trading sequences, and then also just kind of general improvements to the user experience for Crusader Kings 3. So that all sounds good. I think that uh, more players should play uh, Paradox titles. And I also think that the, you know, the more that Paradox can do to kind of uh, stoop to conquer, as they say, you know, to kind of make it easier to onboard people, then uh, then it'll be more likely that uh, this uh, new title will be a success. Yeah. So Crusader Kings 2, so it's a free to play game now. And I know that if you sign up for a Paradox account, which is free and and actually makes it easier to kind of if you have multiple games across, you know, 
produced by them. It doesn't hurt to have the login. You get the old gods for free, mm-hmm. which allows you to move to a 10th century start date for the game and includes mm. the Vikings um, and includes kind of more detailed non-Christian religious systems and stuff. So it's a good DLC. Um, <laughs> I own all the DLC. Um, oh, wow. Uh, because well, The beauty of Crusader Kings 2 is that I don't think... I think I paid for one DLC once at full price. Um, mm-hmm. And then for the rest of... Over the years, I've just... In a Steam sale, I'll pay six bucks for that. I'll pay ten bucks for that, you know, I'll, and so on and so on. And you kind of end up with all of them. I'm very glad also they're onboarding people. I think it kind of reflects an interesting shift in the game industry more broadly. We might talk about in just a few minutes. But um, to talk first about Crusader Kings 2, which is currently available, if anyone's listening and thinking about it, it is tough to get into. And the things that make me happy as an historian make it hard to get into. So, for example, I'm, I started the game the other night um, and basically kind of a random start guided game. And I'm in the northwest of France. I'm basically the petty king of Brittany in the, I think it's the 10th century AD or CE. And uh, all my lords just overthrew me while the Mm. French simultaneously invaded me. Mm. Um, And I'm still actually nominally the king, but I had, the first thing I did was I tried to make some changes to the rules of the kingdom to make it easier for me to basically take vassalages away from my vassals. So already this all sounds desperate grognard crap, right? Oh, what what is he talking about? But in short, um, it's a real pain, and my family is about to more than likely lose the kingship. But the game doesn't end when that happens. And mm-hmm. when I first started playing Crusader Kings 2, that would happen, and I would be like, well, I don't care now. This is annoying. I'll start again. And I was in this kind of mindset, and I almost said a civ civilization mindset that would be a little bit unfair I was in this mindset of right I'm going to unify the whole Roman Empire and then I'm going to take over lots of Europe and I'm going to do that mm-hmm. and you can do that in Crusader Kings 2 but the game doesn't actually want you to work that way the game actually wants you to have these storytelling experiences where for example your family might spend a century in the wilderness and then rise again and take mm-hmm. over My, I played a lot of games mm-hmm. in Ireland which is known in the wider CK2 community as Tutorial Island because it's a particularly safe place Mm -hmm. to start playing the game. And my favourite game that I ever played was I had just united Ireland and large chunks of England were part of what was becoming the Hibernian Empire, or so I dreamed. I was deposed, but through a clever marriage, I suddenly controlled almost all of Italy and large parts of eastern Spain. (laughs) <laughs> and and it was because I had built up all this prestige um, and I had made a couple of marriages and I deliberately married into families into Europe for various reasons and it just kind of worked out that way I was like god this is great now if I dig into it too much I might start to kind of see the creaks and the problems but this is the great thing about the game is that you know history is very messy um, mm-hmm. and there weren't really predetermined outcomes but some people have advantages over others and things are chaotic um mm-hmm. and and the, the thing that makes the game work however and what kind of when i finally figured out how to play it there's still so much happening in the game that i honestly don't really know how to manipulate very well i know how to start a war i know how to win a war um and you focus literally you focus on the genetics of your character because your character dies and you take over as his or her son or daughter and you do that for a few hundred years. And so you can actually have a big impact where two or three generations down the road, you have a really, really good player character. Mm-hmm. Like you basically crafted it yourself. Mm-hmm. Or you could have a terrible one who's an alcoholic and useless. Um, like my current King of Brittany is an alcoholic or was an alcoholic and then died under mysterious circumstances. <laughs> and I took over as his 30-year-old daughter who became the queen. And so once you get a couple of these hooks into the Paradox game, 
And then you start playing for like, you know, a 20-hour game. And that was fun. And you play another 20-hour game and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. That's where it starts to work. And I and I think there's huge potential there for them to make that more accessible. I think they see that. Mm-hmm. And Crusader Kings 3 is going to actively try and do that. Like re- mm-hmm. the recent game Imperator Rome has tried to do that and I think has been a big step forward. CK3 will need another step forward. Mm-hmm. Because if they could do it, the game, I think the sky's the limit for this game. Yeah, so what else would you hope to see for a new CK title that be besides kind of a continuation of this focus on emergent storytelling? I think, I think so the emergent storytelling is really good. It, it is really well done in the sense that, you know, you know, I so the reason my king was a was an alcoholic is that he was kind of confronted by people. It's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to try this thing? You have two choices. You can basically take on your vassal in a fight and potentially see your stats go down, or you could not do that. So I don't want to do that. And the next window was, well, you're an alcoholic now, um, and nobody likes you, and the opinion of your most powerful vassal has gone down by 60. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, this is frustrating. But it's also, that's the beauty of the depth of the game, and I know that it's not necessarily going to kill the game. But there's a lot happening in the game. It's not that I don't have control over it, because you're not supposed to have control over it, but I don't really know what's going on. It's mm-hmm. like technology in the game has never really been clear to me. The short answer is it's not terribly important. And make, this is a game, just to make it clear to the listeners, this is a game you've played for dozens and dozens of oh, hours. Oh, yeah. Hours and hours and hours. I mean, I I'm, I don't know. what Steam says a couple hundred hours, but I don't know. I think it's probably more than that. And, and I played a lot of this game. I've never figured out how technology works. Mm-hmm. I've never gotten comfortable about, for example, even building um, upgrades in my counties and all these kinds of things. Things that in the common language of this kind of game, in a strategy game, you just build things to improve stats and so on and so on. I've had empires where I have a tons of money and then I've been able to do it. But it's mm-hmm. clearly not something, you're clearly not supposed to be able to just make Portugal the most developed country in the world inside 50 years. Like they clearly don't want you to do that. But that's another example of something where like, okay, well, what are you guys trying to do? You know, I send my, I send my spy master to research cultural tech or to start aspiring. And the truth is I'm not, inter- I'm not terribly clear what it is that he's doing. Yeah, You know, I can start a plot to kill a rival, but it's not terribly clear how that even happens. So there's a lot of cool stuff in the game. And if you go into the forums and dig around and, and if you're committed to the game, um, you can figure out how these things work or at least get a working knowledge of them. And I think CK3 has to make a decision where they're going to foreground some more some stuff and maybe even cut some stuff. Yeah, I think stuff could be cut. I mean, if technology yeah. isn't doing anything, does it even need to be in the game at this point? Mm-hmm. Really? Because it's giving you like, because, you know, the way the, the way the Paradox games work, you're talking like a 2% bonus to this and a 3% bonus to that. And the truth is that if I raise 3,000 troops and you raise 1,000, it doesn't actually matter. Yeah. You know? And I think, you know, in playing, I haven't played CK that much, but I have played uh, Hearts of Iron quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, kind of similar game set in the modern era. And the thing with that is that, you know, after playing that for about a dozen hours, I realized that about half the systems, uh, half the options available to the player just don't matter. The, yeah. You know, the thing that you really yes. need to focus on uh, is industry building factories, and that's it. Yes. Uh, everything else you can largely ignore. And, you know, and having some of those systems in there, uh, you know, the, for instance, in uh, Hearts of Iron, there's political systems, uh, there's systems now for espionage, et cetera. Um, and those are interesting, but in those respects, uh, they aren't central to the game, and it makes it uh, very similar to a civilization game 
in that, in those respects, in those particular mm-hmm. respects, where there's a lot of systems in, uh, you know, particularly a late stage civilization game where it's, uh, you know, like Civilization Six has gotten there now, where there's a, you know, a, a dozen uh, add-ons or so, uh, you know, post-release, and at that point you get a bunch of systems in there that don't really do anything and you kind of play through it and you can largely ignore them. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's really the case with uh, the CK games or with Paradox games in general is that they do appear from the outside looking in as incredibly complicated, very sophisticated uh, recreation simulations of the past. But once you really get in there and start playing around with the systems, you often find that many of them don't do much of anything and you can ignore them. Uh, but that's not just a problem for Paradox games. I, I think, uh, the, you know, it's a problem for historical simulation games in general. Yeah, and it, it, it's tough because I, I agree completely in the sense that I never learned how to play every every in and out of a CK2 game to the point mm-hmm. where when I, I have Europa Universalis 4... And I've played a couple of games, and I do like it. And so, for those who don't know, European Universalis Four is very, very similar to Creator Kings Two. It's this. It's the same. It's Paradox. It's the same studio and everything like that. And it's the same thing in that you're basically dealing with a map, really. You know, a, yeah. a map with which you are interacting. And my CK Two knowledge did nothing to help with EU Four. And I learned how to play CK Two by I went to a forum po- a forum, and found a thread where this guy had written down maybe 20 or 30 posts in a row each with a screenshot taking me step by step how to unify the provinces of Munster and Connacht in the island of Ireland it was really well done it was really helpful I was at a time in my life where I had time to do that now it's time now it's part of my personal story of how I learned how to play the game and I kind of like it it kind of makes the game feel more intimate but like that's a ridiculously large bar to have in front of the game. And Hearts of Iron 4 is yeah. the same thing. Like I found a guy online who said, oh yeah, factories are currency. Stop thinking about yeah. factories as, as something you build. It's literally currency. So factories are one, civilian factories are one type of currency. Industrial factories are the other. You can convert them. Here's what you should do. And that, that is, as you say, Bob, that's the one thing you really need to know about Hearts of Iron 4. And after that, yeah. I mean, naval battles in Hearts of Iron 4... Um, any kind of battle or just battles too. in general yeah 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 I don't know what's happening yeah. it's you know it, yeah. it stuff is happening so and Imperator Rome I haven't played enough of it to get that far into it to see they've done a lot of really important work just with the menus and things like that and just making it less ridiculously intimidating from the start um but I I'm hopeful CK3 will go a further a further step. I mean, the, the second CK2 is so popular, they'll make money without having to go too far in that direction. Absolutely. But I, but yeah. I hope they do. I, I really, and I know they want to. So I, I hope they're successful in doing it. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm denigrating uh, the work that Paradox has done. I think CK2 is a real marvel of a game. I mean, it's a really big title. Uh, maybe not in wider culture in the same way that, you know, you would say civilization is, but mm-hmm. definitely in terms of, you know, people who play games, um, you know, uh, journalists, game journalists, uh, it's very, very popular title. And I really hope that the next title is successful. And I hope it, you know, kind of widens the net a bit, uh, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, at least for me, I look at the Paradox titles and I say, oh, this is really interesting. I love how they set this game up where it's not about victory objectives, you know, really gives a good alternative, I think, to the structure of civilization. But at the same time, I wish that it didn't take as long to figure out how to play. Um, and I took that time with Hearts of Iron. But 
I've never really been that willing to do it for any other Paradox title, uh, but I'd like to. I'd like to yeah. play those games. I'd like to be a part of these conversations in the way you are. I think the challenge with the games as well, Hearts of Iron is kind of, it feels like a scenario within the larger engine of a game, which it mm -hmm. probably, I mean, it is basically. Um, yeah. But it's intriguing because you can get these kinds of experiences, but I'd love to have the experience of being Louis Fourteenth trying to wrest control of the Holy Roman Empire away from my rivals and basically become the Emperor of France and Germany combined, which he spent decades trying to do, um, and which other French leaders and the Britain this is what was happening, right, all through the 1600s is all these guys are fighting each other, like who can basically become the elected Emperor of Germany if we can manage it, um, and the Habsburgs don't want them to and stuff. Getting to that point of Crusader Kings 2 is incredibly hard. Um, mm -hmm. it's incredibly difficult and I've never actually done it. And in fact, if you go into the game trying to do it, it's not going to happen. If you're listening and you're like, well, it's free, maybe I'll install it and have a look. My advice is do what I did. And my first 10 games were this actually. Go and pick a county in the south of Ireland. Uh, pick the guy who's the easiest. He gives you a little difficulty bar. Pick the easiest bar in the south of Ireland. F pick some of your vassals and flatter them. Pick the others and insult them. Um, and then invade people. And spend your first century uniting the province of Munster, and if you can get that far, you can do that for the for the next for the next hundred hours. And I know that doesn't sound fun, but I promise it's fun. I promise it's fun. But part of me would love to get to the kind of the Louis XIV scenario. But even if they tried yeah. to, you can pick certain figures and stuff, but it doesn't really work that way. Yeah, you know? I mean, I would just say to listeners, go and go and download it. Um, go and give it a shot. Uh, you know, I think. It runs on just about any machine uh, that I could think of. Uh, it ran on my ancient laptop, mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, something that came out in 2011, I think. So if it can run on that, it can run on anything. And just see if it works for you. See if it, it grabs your attention. And, you know, really, I think, pay attention to how it's structured. I mean, if you've got experience, as I'm sure most of our listeners do, with the Civilization series, um, think about how the structure is different here and why it's different and what kind of different stories could be uh, revealed through yes. that structure. I think that that's what's really compelling, at least for me, uh, for the Paradox titles. And the hook, the hook in CK2 really is the, the people. And so I think mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to emphasize that in CK3, but like your character is actually important. And so <laughs> I've had the situation where my character is like 65. He has done a lot of cool stuff. Like he conquered Scotland, you know, he made peace with the English. He did all these cool things. And I'm looking at his heir, and I'm like, this guy is, uh, we're, we're looking at a dip here. You know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're looking at the weak, weakness in the, in the monarchical system. Uh -huh. um, and it's amazing. You feel attached. And it's one of the catches of the game. Another thing they definitely have to change for CK3, the government types is great once you get past the learning curve, but it's kind of tough. It's like, wait a minute, why am I losing half my territory? Why are my three kids all getting what? wait, my daughter can inherit, now she can't. That's all good fodder for thinking about historical context, but it's it's tricky. It's mm -hmm. tricky. There's one mm -hmm. more thing, actually, we should talk about, Bob, as well, before we go on to kind of what we've been playing. Um, and I'm throwing this at you because I forgot to say to you before we started recording. Uh -oh. The game is called Crusader Kings 2. And especially in the vanilla game, the very first game, that's a big that can that can be a big part of the game because if you if the pope calls for a crusade and if you're a powerful european country and you get more crusader points than anybody else you can get very significant rewards out of that mm -hmm. and very meaningful rewards and as the game has developed you can you can conduct holy wars and everything else um 
And the game has long since left that kind of idea behind. So the crusade today, of course, would be very... And in 2013, when the game came out, it can be very, very controversial. Mm-hmm. And I, my favourite DLC for the game is probably Sword of Islam, largely because it just changes up the game in lots of really cool and interesting and fun new ways. And it also was a nice way to kind of confirm that the Crusader thing is only one part of kind of the element of what we're doing. But in Crusader Kings 2, Deus Vault features fairly prominently. Mm-hmm. And for people who don't know at home, um, that sadly, like many other things, like the OK symbol and stuff like that, has been appropriated by some pretty unpleasant people on the internet, you know. White supremacists. Pe- white supremacists, yeah. yeah. People who have very fixed ideas about the kind of society, theoretically, we... That's, that's air quotes on the word we should be living in. And so they've been clear that in CK3, that phrase will not be there, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. And I thought we'd talk about it for a second because I, I, I think it's probably the right call just because it doesn't really cost the game anything. You yeah. know, um, I understand why they can't rename the game or why they're not going to at least. I guess they could, but why they're not going to. But that, that's that's a challenge. And I know I don't want to get into too big a conversation about representations of the medieval, Bob, but so what do you think about this? What do you think about the fact that decision even had to be made? What, what do you make of all that? I think that it is the right decision. And mm-hmm. I think that the game is a touchstone for white supremacists on the Internet. Yeah. It is definitely a game that has been modded quite a bit, uh, featuring, you know, kind of... Um, modifications that are based on these racist notions and those are incredibly popular. Uh, the, uh, you know, there's a sizable uh, 4chan community or there was uh, for this game uh, that was focused on kind of exploring these racist ideologies through medieval history using uh, Crusader Kings as the basis for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Paradox has had some troubles with this, with their other titles. Uh, we talked during the summer about my playthrough of the latest uh, Hearts of Iron mm-hmm. um, yeah. DLC, which yeah. had uh, a, a new uh, gameplay mode in which you could play as the Confederate States uh, and, you know, a return of the Confederacy uh, in this new alternate history of the Second World War. And I think that that kind of move on the part of Paradox is – not advisable, I would say, mm-hmm. because it plays into uh, the desires, the wishes of this modern community, and it, it could be a moneymaker for Paradox. But I think you're also kind of inviting, um, you know, negative connotations uh, related to Paradox and their other titles by, you know, playing into these sorts of uh, r- this racist modern community. And I was mm-hmm. honestly, I was shocked that there wasn't more of a hullabaloo about uh, the Hearts of Iron 4 uh, DLC that did this uh, mm-hmm. because it signaled to me that it was almost as though Paradox was giving their seal of approval to these kind of mods, uh, which I know they probably were not. Right. To do, but they do have to be careful with that. So for my money, as somebody who played a little bit of CK2, I think that taking out – Deus Vol taking out some of the other ideologically driven perspectives on uh, you know the Middle Ages is probably a good idea. Yeah, I agree completely, and 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 it's I think it was kind of a no brainer because it really, it doesn't cost the game anything. Yes, at all, you know, yeah. and because you can start getting. I mean, and sure, people were saying Deus Vault and everything, but if you actually play the game, 
you'll soon discover the game is not presenting a rosy vision of medieval life. Correct. Europe. Correct. Yes. But yeah, but these things matter. I'm also surprised with all the context of the last couple of years. It's quite interesting, and I, I don't want to get too much off topic, but I was listening to Giant Bombcast this morning, walking into work, the most recent one, and or last week's one. And they were talking about Fortnite and how, like, Lady Gaga is referencing Fortnite. And they were kind of joking about this, you know. Um, Fortnite is obviously occupying a space in the broader culture, whatever that it means anymore, that other games aren't. And so it's kind of curious where circles I travel in, I guess, online, to put it that way, CK2 and Hearts of Iron 4, they're fairly big deals. But even that Mm -hmm. circle, that's a kind of a niche circle. That's like a PC gaming circle. Yeah. Um, and, and, And which also, as you point out, can get infiltrated by some pretty nasty people. Yeah, but so, yeah. I think as as we go forward, I mean, the circles of you know the internet and video games, those overlap, and they're going to overlap mm-hmm. even more as more and more people get into playing games, and as you know, we have uh, older titles like CK, uh, Europa Universalis, uh, Hearts of Iron that are going to get opened up to newer players, mm-hmm. new player bases. Um, you know, I think it's important to recognize the kind of influence those games could have not just on game development, but then also on the historical imaginations of mm-hmm. players. And that's a real responsibility. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, some historical titles take that very seriously. You think about Assassin's Creed, for instance, has uh, really done a lot of work, uh, paid a lot of lip service as well, but I think also done a lot of legitimate work uh, to diversify their depiction of the past mm-hmm. and to kind of remove it from uh, these older connotations uh, related to uh, white supremacy or some other uh, negative ideology. Uh, and I think that uh, paradox is they become a bigger deal uh, as their um, you know titles go from being kind of the playthings of uh, uh, Gragnards uh, and go mm-hmm. into the hands of uh, younger players, newer player bases that they they should take this uh, more seriously. i'm I'm not saying they haven't done that sure. already, but I think, you know, they do have to keep an eye on that. And I think this move to take out Dave's fault for the third game kind of signals that they are thinking about it. Yeah, and because I, I think video game culture can be a little bit reactionary sometimes. A little bit, fr- you know, this is one of the challenges. Why are we being asked to change? Or is mm-hmm. aren't you overreacting? Which is kind of, you know, is a big kind of part of these conversations. And I think the medium is clearly maturing. Yes. Um, which is fantastic I, in multiple ways. I mean, I, I was just thinking about I was playing The Last of Us recently and I still love that game. And I think of the impact that game made on me. And I still think it's one, it's one of my favorite games but ever made. But still, I am, I'm spoiled now. I, I regularly have the opportunity to play video games that are that have stories that are that interesting and that respect me, the player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, that that's more common now. Now, because there's more games in general being made all over the place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so yeah, so that's good. I, I I'm glad we addressed that because I think it's important, and I and I think it's important that um, Paradox themselves care enough to have addressed it. You know, they've yeah. been telling video games journalists very clearly, no, no, that's out. We're just not doing it. We're yeah. we don't we don't need that. You know, being friends of racists is not profitable. Apart from being a morally correct decision, <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. there's no profit in it. You know. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, let's change tack a wee bit then. Um, so we'll round up with what we've been playing, I suppose. Bob, have you been playing anything fun or interesting in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I picked up Far Cry 5 uh, for PlayStation 4. And I got this game not necessarily because I was really eager to play it, but because I'd gotten the news earlier this month that uh, Doom Eternal, 
the new Doom title, had been delayed until next year. And we have and to be so, clear, Bob, that was a that was a big blow for you. Doom's a good game, but Doom has a special place in your heart. Crushing blow for yeah. me. I I love the new iteration of Doom that came out in 2016. Eagerly anticipating the new Doom game this fall, and unfortunately it got delayed. And so I had been, you know, as being a part of a, a growing family now, I have a family budget, and I had set aside sixty or so dollars to spend on a game this fall. And now that money is freed up because Doom wasn't coming out, and so I turned and looked around and see what else was coming out and kind of made a decision well i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of uh go back and play some games that i passed by in the past couple years and so first up on that list was far cry 5 and uh, for those of you who don't know or may have forgotten far cry 5 uh latest title in the far cry series came out i think in spring of last year uh kind of got a lukewarm reception and the I think the basis for that reception was primarily related to the story, which uh, the Far Cry series historically has been set in kind of far-flung reaches of the world, uh, places uh, in particular in the third world uh, where there is, uh, you know, kind of uh, ongoing civil war, ongoing uh, internal conflicts. And this newest Far Cry series uh, game is set in Montana, uh, and it revolves around... Uh, player character who's playing a U.S. Marshal, a silent protagonist, which is uh, different for the Far Cry series. This silent protagonist uh, is uh, thrown in the mix with a uh, religious cult, uh, kind of a paramilitary uh, cult, has taken over this uh, area in central Montana, and it's up to you to kind of round up uh, these cult members, and in particular the uh, cult leader, a guy named Joseph Seed. And they're playing up uh, a lot of the kind of uh, what you've got in Montana, the kind of cliches of uh, wide open spaces, big sky country, as they call it, uh, filled with uh, paramilitary groups, filled with militias, and also these um, Christian religious sects that uh, kind of go off the rails. Uh, and the uh, antagonist is kind of a is kind of modeled off of. Uh, it seems like a combination of David Koresh and other notable uh, cultist mm -hmm. leaders, um, you know, kind of a charismatic uh, uh, personage who has got a, kind of a group of uh, close acolytes and then under him uh, a huge body of uh, cult members uh, who do his bidding. And I think that the game itself, you know, as a Far Cry title – it works really well. Um, you know, the gameplay elements uh, are really strong, you know, kind of followed off of Far Cry 3 and 4. Uh, very compelling open world, uh, really beautiful open world, a lot of side activities for the player to jump into. But as far as the central story, which seemed to, before the release of the game, seemed to be pointing towards some sort of potential criticism against the religious right in America perhaps a uh, criticism of the far right uh, in the United States, uh, the game largely skirts those issues. And in fact, I would say that the characters in the game really don't have a political angle. And it feels weird because where the game is set, what the game uh, you know, has as the basis for the conflict – 
uh, it seems like the characters should have more to say mm-hmm. politically, but they don't. And so it's it feels like the game has a bit of a vacuum in the narrative. Um, and I think, you know, as far as we were talking about with Paradox, that seemed to be a conscious decision for Ubisoft, you know, uh, trying to avoid any sort of controversy. But it also means that the game's overarching narrative feels less than compelling um you know i i find the game compelling because of the gameplay elements but um the story itself is not really giving uh, me much of anything to go off of that's really interesting i remember that coverage and that discussion about it because i don't know what you think bob but it's intriguing to me because you talk about they're not saying anything political but like you're not and uh, this is obvious i hope like you're not saying why aren't they criticizing i don't know um Falwell Jr. or somebody, right? <laughs> like Liberty University. Mm-hmm. That's 100% not what you're saying. Right, I get right. that we kind of, I get that we live in a world where people on both sides of these political divides are very sensitive and everything. But like, you, you, this idea that surely they could dive into the idea that like mob rule is not a good thing or, or what happens when a mm-hmm. deeply charismatic leader um, is doing things that might not actually be good and, and, and the community doesn't understand that or... For example, it's a fairly solid enlightenment acceptance, accepted thing that uh, we should be thinking about our civic government and our religious institutions as two separate things, mm-hmm. that they can influence each other. Of course, they're going to, especially individual level, but why should they do this? I just, I guess it just bums me out because surely there's ways, especially if you're going into it, like if you're making a game to criticize a specific thing that's happening right now or specific people, that's very hard to do without it coming across as feeling like an attack because it probably kind of would be on some level. But the principles are the same, right? Which is, mm-hmm. this is like cults are a problem for a reason, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like cults or, or um, you know, being part of a community that insists now you have to think this and make this political decision because I told you because you and I are the same faith group and I'm a leader in this group. Mm-hmm. I, as someone who, you know, don't give too much information to the listeners, as someone who believes in God and participates in a pretty um, conservative I would say medieval organization, <laughs> the Catholic <laughs> Church. I would object to my priest telling me, "You got to think this now. You got to go and vote this way." Yeah, and I know that some people do that, but like I, yeah, I, I would be disappointed as well, right? You can make these points and and then defy yourself, defend yourself rather, justifiably. You know, yeah. if someone comes out and says you're attacking such a thing, you say, "No, I'm not." You know, if yeah. you're seeing similarities in your situation, that's kind of on you. Yeah, but I guess and that was I- too risky. I, I don't know. And uh, but I think the game, you know, is inherently political in the way that they've set it up, you know, setting right. it in Montana, setting it with religious groups, yeah. with militias, you know, that's making a statement, I think, that uh, Far Cry hasn't made up to this point. You know, mm-hmm. Far Cry one, I think, is set on a um, uh, island in the South Pacific. Right. Uh, Far Cry two is set in the heart of Africa. Uh, Far Cry three is set on another uh, South Pacific island. And then uh, Far Cry 4 is set in Nepal, mm-hmm. and or at least a you know uh, a, yeah. a, a, a fictionalized version of Nepal, yeah. and uh, you know in each of those titles they received criticism, uh, especially in Far Cry 2 and Far Cry 4, uh, for presenting the third world uh, or the developing world as a place where there's just um, you know nonstop violence, civil war, um, political chaos. 
uh, a lack of morality, you know, all of the kind of pejoratives that you associate, or at least, you know, with uh, negative media representations of those areas of the world. And so I think uh, for them, setting it in the United States, setting it in Montana is a way to alleviate some of that pressure. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, I feel that uh, Far Cry 2, and to a certain extent Far Cry 4, but certainly Far Cry 2, uh, they didn't necessarily pull their punches when it came to political criticism, right? Far Cry 2 had a lot of that with regards to the right. way the international community in that game largely washes their hands of these problems that are, to some extent, made by the way international society operates and how foreign affairs, how um, you know international capitalism works. Uh, that you know it kind of draws a line between that and what's happening in Central Africa in that game, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't get any of that here in Far Cry Five. And I would say I haven't played the full game, but I have. There's three main areas in the game. I've cleared one of those so far, and I'm kind of halfway through the second one. So I'd say I'm about 12 hours in, and there's still nothing, right? So mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of that's kind of a problem, right? I'm not saying, you know, like you said, I'm not trying to say, oh, well, this game needs to bash this political ideology. It needs to attack this religious uh, group or this particular um, uh, idea of uh, private religious groups. But it does need to kind of have some sort of conversation about it. And right. it doesn't do that. And so I feel like it's just an odd feel and it it feels it makes the game feel very corporate but it also makes the game feel very empty as far mm-hmm. as the storyline like i just i could care less about <laughs> the main story in that game and i think i mean i would like to think that there's a way that they could have done better and what's its depiction of kind of the urban rural divide like then i mean it's set in montana as you say and of course the united states has its own very specific experience of that but I'm thinking as an historian like in our present times I think about that a lot because I live in a I live in a big town but I basically live in a rural area more broadly central Kentucky mm-hmm. um, and historically in so many different societies this manifests especially in the modern period of urban versus rural divides and stuff I mean you know is the I never really saw any coverage to this extent is the game in danger of presenting rubes and otherwise not rube types or is that not really happening uh, that doesn't really happen. I mean, it's a little bit odd. The A lot of the characters have kind of what I would characterize as a country accent. Okay. Uh, it, it is set in Montana, which is not an area, you know, associated with any sort of heavy accent one way or the other. But you would almost say that if, you know, and this is a game developed uh, by Ubisoft, uh, French corporation, uh, French-Canadian uh, corporation. So I'm not really sure which uh, group, whether it was Montreal or the group in France that, that developed this. Uh, but it is kind of a cliche depiction of, of rural America. But um, I wouldn't say that they are criticizing those people or that there's a sharp, you know, kind of uh, hard edge to the way that they're depicted. I think uh, there is a little bit of criticism of uh, preppers, doomsday preppers. Uh, for instance, a major mechanic in the game uh, is to go into uh, and to discover prepper stashes. Uh, so these are underground bunkers where people have left uh, supplies, weapons uh, that the player character can discover and gain perks and basically level up uh, through the game. And so there's a lot of uh, kind of 
documentation in the game, uh, discoverables, uh, you know, uh, answering machine messages, uh, emails, uh, letters, etc., uh, in which these doomsday preppers are, you know, kind of getting ready for the end of the world because they, you know, they see the cult's activity, they see the lack of uh, government interference, and so they're taking that as the basis for getting ready uh, right. for the end. And basically, I've only been through two areas of the game so far, but basically every single resident in this game uh, has an underground bunker. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the NPCs in the game talk about, well, uh, you know, I'm out here fighting the good fight, but I'm trying to save up money so I could build my own underground bunker. And so basically <laughs> there's this notion that, well, everybody in Montana is, uh, you know, kind of uh, set up to build these bunkers to get ready for the end of the world. Uh, and so I think that that kind of depiction though is based on having an interesting gameplay mechanic rather than actually trying to represent life in Montana. Uh, right. You know, and I say that because the, uh, prepper stashes, they almost work. Um, they almost work like, uh, the kind of light puzzle towers in previous, Far Cry games, uh, mm -hmm. you know, where you kind of climb a tower and you kind of have to right. figure out where to jump next. Uh, and they're also a little bit similar to the old tombs in Assassin's Creed games. So there's kind of a, I would say, Ubisoft uh, lineage here, uh, right. you know, bringing in elements of Assassin's Creed, bringing in elements of old Far Cry games. And so the gameplay part of the Prepper Stashes are great. They're wonderful. They're really nice little puzzles to figure out. They, you know, break up the otherwise kind of uh, by the books first person shooter uh, aspects of the game. Um, but they don't, you know, the I feel like the narrative elements of the prepper stashes are just kind of, <laughs> you know, eh, they're kind of whatever. Uh, and it just it's just service of a uh, gameplay uh, right. aspect. It's funny you bring it up because in the Days Gone game that I have on PS4, that where you're, you're in, it's a post-apocalyptic Pacific Northwest where basically kind of vampiric, kind of like the um, I Am Legend style bad guys are roaming the land. Um, uh, it is a similar thing where these stashes are actually very important gameplay focal points. But one of the things I like about Days Gone though is that one of the factions is run by this guy who's basically was raised by his father to be kind of a lunatic, you know, like mm -hmm. an extremely anti-government caricature of a prepper, anti-government type guy. And then there was this horrible virus that decimated the world and he looked, he looks correct. And so he has, he has managed to parlay this into a significant amount of power. Yeah. Um, and I quite liked that. I thought that was kind of a nice little twist, you know, I was like, that's good. That's, that's, this guy is basically an idiot in the world prior to the, yeah. its collapse. And now he can claim that he knew all along. I told you it would yeah. happen, you know. Um, but it's funny because the same thing in Days Gone where the prepper stuff is just, they just want to, they want a target for you to try and clear bad guys out from. And once it's cleared, yes. you walk into the stash, yes. you get all the goodies. Yes. Yeah. And it's yeah. interesting too, because uh, when you liberate an outpost, when you liberate um, a location, a, a city or a town or a farm, in the game, uh, the resistance fighters, the people who are resisting the cult, uh, they you know they take down all the cult's uh, stuff, they burn it, uh, and then they replace it with American flags, which I, I, mm. I think is a little odd because yeah. you know Montana, the kind of 
those mountain area states, they have a very significant libertarian streak. And mm-hmm. there's uh, this kind of notion that, uh, you know, a lot of people talking about uh, secession, you know, uh, creating independent states uh, within uh, the U.S., that kind of thing. Uh, and it, so it feels a little bit odd to have all these prepper stashes, to have all of the trappings of mm-hmm. uh, libertarian militias, and then fall back on, oh, well, we're going to replace this all with American flags. That that mm-hmm. feels a little bit odd, but it kind of falls in line with the way the game treats right. politics more generally. But it would be the real America, though, right, Bob? That would be the... <laughs> no, I mean, I, I always, right. you know, yeah, having yeah. lived, yeah, having lived in Texas, I just find this so fascinating because... Texans who often with their tongue very firmly in their cheek will talk to you about secession um, are very proud Americans as well. And so like you were just saying that you can be like independent, but within this idea of a federalized United States, it's just sure there's layers to that. (laughs) There is. It's complicated. Yeah. So So what about you? What have you been playing? Yeah. So before we go, I've been playing this role playing game, Disco Elysium, which is made by a group uh, it's ZA slash UM, so I guess that's ZAUM, not sure. Mm. And Disco Elysium, we were talking just before we started recording, is quite, um, it's a bit like this Joaquin Phoenix was in a movie a couple of years ago by Paul Thomas Anderson based on the Pynchon novel Inherent Vice, which, well, Bob, you've described, you've seen Inherent Vice, so could you describe it very briefly because it'll help me explain the game if you describe to the listeners what Inherent Vice yeah, is. it's kind of a... It's kind of a more serious 1970s version of The Big Lebowski. Uh, so uh, a a play on a Dashiell Hammett, uh, you know, kind of noir story set in L.A., but during the counterculture movement of the late 60s, early 1970s. And Joaquin Phoenix plays kind of a down-on-his-luck uh, private investigator who has got uh, a... Uh, a, uh, a habit, uh, you know, marijuana, alcohol, uh, various pharmaceuticals, uh, and he's trying to solve uh, a murder mystery, basically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and Disco Elysium, I think, has a lot of DNA clearly shared with that kind of an idea where you wake up as you're a 70s cop, but the entire setting is completely fictional. So it's it's kind of a, from the very outset of the game, it's very clearly a specific interpretation of like the 1970s. Like they they want to use 1970s tropes. So like you're mm-hmm. you're you're in a place called Ravanchol. Like it's, everything's fictional. The location's fictional. The history, the politics. They've created all of this. Apparently, it's based on a homebrewed tabletop role playing campaign that the developers had themselves. So there's a lot going mm-hmm. on there. But they've clearly used this 1970s lens. There you go. I'm an academic. I had to come in at some point to kind of view it. So he puts on these bell bottom trousers and everything. There are cocaine references. You're basically a 1970s cop who's an alcoholic trying to solve a crime. So it's really an an interesting game. Uh, Its skill system is fascinating in that you effectively can choose to be, you can be very strong or you can be very agile or you can be someone who's very good at figuring out what's happening at a crime scene or somebody who has extreme empathy. It's not mind reading, but it's very, very good empathetic skills. And the way that this plays out is your conversations, NPCs can go in drastically different directions and can allow you to kind of negotiate with them differently. And also your necktie talks to you Mm. and other inanimate objects talk to you. And I'm only a few hours into the game and it's still not clear to me. Is this just because my character, you're basically waking up in a massive crisis. He's He's been in a fugue state. He remembers nothing. 
your partner shows up to where you're staying and clearly feels sorry for you. It's like other characters are are kind of either repulsed by you or worried about you. Your alcoholism is clearly evident. And the game is giving me a choice to try and kick it or continue to be an alcoholic, mm. which is kind of is intense, right? And 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 there's characters early in the game. There's a child character, these two children characters very early in the game that are saying some nasty stuff and kind of you accusing you of being a pedophile in, in the way that like particularly foul mouth rough kids would treat cops. They don't respect cop figures and all this kind of stuff. And so the game is going in multiple directions at once and getting into deep stuff really quickly. And it really cares the conversations you have with characters. And the reason I bring all this up, first of all, I really like this game and I think it's worth a look for people listening. If you like RPGs and it, particularly if you like something like Planescape Torment and RPGs that try and do something a little different, it is worth your time to look at for sure and think about. And I thought the Rock Paper Shotgun review in particular was very, very good of this game and really helped me decide if I wanted to take the plunge and, and get into it. And I'm glad I did. But speaking as an historian, why is the 1970s, right? And not just the 1970s, but that kind of inherent vice slash Big Lebowski, this is what it was like, but not really, version of the 1970s. Why is that the hook they're using? Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. I think that hook is really important in making the game kind of make sense. So the fact you're kind of a grizzled cop, but you've got real problems, but you're wearing bell bottoms and you're living in a kind of a world that's kind of this kind of 1970s decadence. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I really feel that while I'm playing this game, despite the fact the game makes outside of ostensibly outside of stylistic choices isn't actually referenced in the 1970s at all. Yeah. Well, and I just think that's well, fascinating. What do we know about the developers? Are they based in America? Um, I believe they're based in America. This is where I get um, mortified and realize I'm trying to figure out who, <laughs> I should have looked up who these guys this is are. This John. Uh, yeah, ah, right this is kind of like, I, I, I won't do it. I'll be honest to our readers and we'll, we'll look it up as we're discussing. Because now that, that you're great. saying it, because it came, it came, if you ordered in GOG early, you got um, Underrail which I Uh think was something they made. So they kind of have a background as an underrail was kind of like if you liked Fallout 2 and you wanted more of that style of really old school playing game, this is for you. Um, And I'm looking forward to playing that at a future date. I think they kind of, they swung and maybe it was like a base hit type thing. Yeah. That makes as pretentious as that sounds. Because I, Uh, I, I... I asked the you know where the developers are from because you know the 1970s. Oh, they're Estonian. Especially, they're Estonian. Estonian. Sorry, okay. yeah, I didn't well, realize the, they were Estonian. Yeah, well, the 1970s, especially in American culture, is kind of the decade associated with the anti-hero, and particularly right. when it comes to uh, police dramas or police uh, procedurals, crime dramas. You know, this is the decade that gave us Dirty Harry, the decade that gave us, uh, um, oh, Al Pacino and Serpico. Right. So these kind of uh, grungy, uh, morally corrupt or morally compromised, at least, individuals mm-hmm. with personal problems. And yet they're the ones who also have to to take out the garbage, right? They have to, to deal right. with these uh, situations and the kind of fallout from the counterculture of the 1960s. Um, and so there's definitely a sense in which I think, and this, this works for, um, inherent vice. It sounds like it works for this game where you adapt the 1970s, not necessarily to portray how it actually was, but to make a declaration that this is about a, 
uh, morally corrupt, um, you know, kind of grungy environments in which everybody is playing an angle uh, and right. in which things maybe not won't work out. And the 70s also, I should mention, uh, was an era in which a lot of uh, filmmakers, in particular also novelists, uh, began to uh, redevelop or return to noir as a right. theme. And so this is where you get uh, Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Uh, this is when you get a lot of neo-noir uh, films and books that come out, mm -hmm. particularly uh, in the mid to late 1970s. And so all of that together kind of points to, uh, you know, the way in which we conceptualize, I feel like, this particular era of history. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting to see a game do that because I feel like – I don't know how you feel. And we talked about this in the most recent episode, uh, video episode of History Respawn with uh, Wolfenstein Youngblood in which it seems like it's very popular for developers uh, to – adapt the 1980s mm -hmm. um, and I think that's you know as we kind of discussed it's kind of partly because you know developers are around our age you know mid to late 30s uh, you know remember the 1980s fondly it kind of it makes up a lot of our uh, popular culture today uh, but then also that's kind of the genesis point for most of the video games computer games digital games right. that we know and love uh, right. and so it's interesting to see developers go back earlier than that 1970s um mm -hmm. and i think you know steampunk steampunk sorry is also very popular late 19th century early uh 20th century as kind of a uh, milieu for developers mm -hmm. but you rarely see games set in mid-century uh america or elsewhere i, I don't right. know if i'm off base there what do you think about that no i think you're right and i think there's a lot to it if you think about you know when you're thinking of the 80s origin of video games and thinking of Space Invaders and Pac-Man and the visual language that became embedded into the medium, yes. you know. And I was just looking up uh, earlier uh, this this publisher, so it looks like this is their de debut game. And I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by that, actually, that it's their debut. I think that you're saying, like, this game is definitely a noir game. It's soaked with a kind of a fatalism, you know. Yes, um, I'm already I'm, I'm into it now. And and of course, that's a big thing, too, I think, in the 70s as well. Like, why is Dirty Harry become such a big figure? You know, New York, you know, which now we think of almost as the capital of the world in, yeah. in many ways, you know, was a terrible place to be. <laughs> um, uh, you, know. you know, that's uh, French Connection also. Right, right. Um, Death Wish. Uh, I mean, compare Charles Bronson. Yeah, people were talking about the um, the the. Um, the blackout of New York a couple of months ago and the difference in reaction of the people of New York and just broader American society where it was like an amusing, fun thing compared to like the 1970s, for example, where the city just immediately started burning. You know, it is mm -hmm. a terrible thing. And like Jimmy Carter supposedly, you know, was this terrible president and Vietnam had ended and the Russians were on the up and all these terrible things. You know, before Reagan came in and fixed everything, right? This kind of idea <laughs> the 70s are a disaster. And Fatalism this game is, is a good way to put it. I think that's right. right. Yeah. And this game is saturated with that. And, I, and I, I'm someone who, you know, I'd be perfectly honest, I'm not the most adventurous sometimes when it comes to visual and aural styles taken in the indie scene. I love the way this game looks. I love the way it sounds. I... I I, it's too early to tell. I think it could become a classic. I don't know. I mean, that I know that sounds like these are 
fighting words for a guy who's only played a few hours of the game. So let's let's take that into consideration. But the stuff they're doing is fascinating. And now seeing they're not American fascinates me further because now it's as as a foreigner living in this country who kind of loves this country or loves the mythos of the country, doesn't mean I love everything about it, right? Like not all, not everyone is. These guys, these people seem to have a similar thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Like maybe they're not in love with America itself, but they have dived right into flawed 1970s cop territory. (laughs) Um, and, and, And investigating it in a thematic and confident way that I just haven't really seen. And so I, I talked a few minutes ago about how I really think the medium is maturing. Disco Elysium is, I think, an excellent example of that because it's not doing it for the sake of it. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't come across yeah. as cheap or crass or look at us for pushing boundaries. It really feels like we wanted to tell the story, wanted to tell a certain story. We wanted to tell it a very specific way. So we did. And the audience is ready for this now, you mm-hmm. know, and we're able to do it now. Wow. So well, I think I'm, you might have convinced yeah. me to go get it. I, I knew nothing about this game before you started talking about it. So I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm really high on it. I, I've really been enjoying it. I've really been enjoying it. And I will say it's it's basically an Infinity Engine game. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. So if you hated Pillars of Eternity and if you hate the idea of playing Planescape Torment and if Baldur's Gate sounds deeply unimp- unimpressive to you, like in, in the kind of game you like to play, I don't see this changing your mind about that. Although I will say um, combat and everything is just so few and far between, at least so far in my playthrough, uh, it really feels like an adventure game. And in fact, my cloud sync isn't quite working for some reason. So I started a game with a completely different kind of character on my desktop PC just to kind of uh, versus my surface where I'm playing my main game just to kind of see what changes. I picked a completely different character, a character has none of the empathy skills that my other character has. And the opening 10 minutes of the game were completely different. Wow. That's impressive. Now, I have no idea if they can sustain that across a whole game, but um, I was very impressed by how different that was. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. 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 All of those games you listed <laughs> off, Baldur's Gate, Fallout, I mean, that's my that's my wheelhouse right there. I think so. you should seriously consider Disco Elysium for sure. Yeah, okay. Definitely. I'm going to write it down. <laughs> I'm going to write it down right now. Write it down. Well, there you are go. You, I've done one good thing today. Are you playing today. on Steam? Or... I'm playing on GOG, and I, I think I okay. did that because it's it's not running anymore, but because I got Underrail for free, which is a game that I will one day play, and I yeah. think it's Windows only. So I'm playing on okay. Windows machines. So, okay. so yeah. So for those listening at home, um, and yeah. So I think I think that's it. I think that's all I have to share. This that's week, all Bob. I've got to. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, wrap let's it up. do it. Let's wrap it up. We'll be back again soon. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We always appreciate your support. Um, Of course, you support us by listening and by reviewing the podcast on iTunes and other places. But also, if you want to support us more directly, please do consider going to patreon.com slash historyrespond. You can find podcasts and videos at historyrespond.com. And of course, you can always go straight to the YouTube channel searching for us on YouTube. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time. Bob, thank you for joining us. Thanks, John. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.